0: So we are um, coming to the end part of our series, Heaven, Hell, and End Times. Next week we get to talk all about the new heavens and new earth, chapter 21 and chapter 22. Today we're talking about chapter 20, um, namely the first third of chapter 20 and then the last third of chapter 20. Two different scenes, dramatically different scenes going on. The first one talks about this season of time called, um, we've called it the millennium. Theologians call it the millennium. It's described several times as as this thousand years. But is it a Literal thousand years, or is it a metaphorical thousand years, or what's actually going on in these thousand years? And then the last part of the book uh, of chapter 20 in the book of Revelation is this scene um, that we refer to as the last or the final judgment in which every single person stands before Jesus. And we are judged, and, and there is hell And then there is entering into the presence of the Lord. And so we get to talk about these things today. And the beginning of chapter 20 here, what we're going to find is that um, there is probably no passage in all of Scripture that has um, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians more... um, Divided in understanding, I would not say like divided in unity, I think every single christian who who holds whatever view they hold at the beginning of chapter twenty holds it with an open hand and just says hey you 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 love jesus and and I love Jesus and you have this view, and I have this view so um, so we 're going to look at these different views before we do i 'm going to give us um, just a uh, a recap of last week. So last week we talked about there's four different views in interpreting or understanding when, like the time, when Revelation chapter 5 through, you could really say 5 through 19 or 5 through 20 and a half, depending on which view you have. And so there's four different understandings that, again, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians have when it comes to understanding when these things happen. You have this preterist view which says these things have already all happened and they've all taken place. Chapters 5 through 19, 20 and a half, they've already taken place. Namely, in the first four centuries. The next view is the historic view. The historic view says um, some of the stuff has happened in Revelation and some of it is still ahead to happen and Um, And so we live in the midst of Revelation, you know, are we in Revelation 11, are we in Revelation 13, are we in Revelation 7, you know. That, that's the view, the historic view. Some of it's happened. There's still more to happen. You have the idealist view, and the idealist view reads Revelation 5 through 20 as these symbols of what is ongoingly occurring um, throughout the story of the church. And it's painting this symbolic picture of the conflict that exists between Jesus and the church against Satan and his vessels, and so, for example, when it talks about okay, there's going to be wars, that there's going to be a, this great war, there's going to be this great famine, and then there's going to be these believers that are suffering, and there's going to be like this. It seems to be like this political power, and and idealist would say, hey, how many wars have we seen? More than we can count. How many famines have we seen? Again, more than we can count. And how often are we seeing suffering, uh, Christian suffering? Well, every single century. And so they would view the book of Revelation is not like consecutive events, one happening after another, after another, after another, but rather it's all this symbolic picture of the conflict that is going on Of Christ and the church against Satan and his vessels. And then you have the futurist and dispensational view. The futurist view says, hey, none of anything, none of Revelation 5 and following has happened yet. It's going to happen sometime in the future. We don't know when. When it does begin to happen, when chapter 5 and chapter 6 begin to happen, start the clock because it's only going to be seven years. Seven decisive years. It's called the seven years of tribulation. And then you get... Um, revelation twenty this this thousand years the dispensational view is the same. As the futurist view, the only thing that is unique and different about it is dispensationalists say there's actually going to be this thing called the rapture um, that's going to happen right before Revelation chapter 5. And every single person who's a Christian is going to go up to heaven and they don't go through the seven years of tribulation. And um, it's worth noting that um, the word rapture doesn't occur in the Bible. The, this idea of the rapture didn't... Um, didn't come out until the early 1800s. I believe it was 1820. And and here's what they would do. They would take like Matthew 24. I don't know if you remember this passage. Matthew 24 is that passage where it talks about there's going to be two people like working in a field. And then all of a sudden, boom, one's going to vanish. And the other's going to stay there. Or there's going to be two people like they're grinding grain. And boom, in an instant, one is going to vanish and one's going to stay there. And they would say, oh, look, the rapture. And I, he, he would here's what I would just say. Go read Matthew 24 in its context. Like, the whole story of Matthew 24 it really kind of begins Matthew 23 and ends Matthew 25. It ends with the judgment seat. And read that story in Matthew 24. And um, here was kind of my breakthrough. Um, is you want to be the one that stays. You don't, you don't want to be the one that is left. The one that is left, at least... Really, if you pay attention to it, it seems as if the one that is that is taken away is is going to a place you and I do not want to go. We'll talk about it in a moment. It's called hell. So um, you can see where I come from on my understanding of the rapture. Um, but again, I hold this my view with an open hand. Um, and so there are the here are the four views of understanding when these when the book of Revelation is going to happen, namely chapter 5 through 19. Now we come to chapter 20, and there are three other views, just brand new views, through three views of understanding chapter 20. And so, um, here's what we're going to do. We are going to read chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. I'm just going to make some observations along the way. We're going to talk about these three views, and then we are going to talk about the final judgment. So, Revelation 20. You guys ready? Get excited with me. Last week, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was just like, wow, this is incredible and I don't even want to show my enthusiasm or you just weren't enthused at all. So I don't like at least fake it, y'all. Just just for my sake, fake it. Everyone just say amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay. All right. Here we go. Revelation 20 verses one through three. Here's what we're going to point out. Who are the key players? Who are the key players and what's going on? So it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This is John. John, the Apostle John, is having this vision. He says, Then I, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon. Who's the dragon? Keep listening. That ancient serpent... Who is the devil and Satan? So, player number one in this scene, Satan. And the angel bound him. So, okay, pay attention to this. Bound him. For how long? How long did he bind him? A thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might... Not deceive the nations. Now, who are the nations? Does anyone know who the nations is? Nations are spoken about in the Book of Revelation. Spoken about, um, especially a lot in old, old Testament scripture. Who are the nations? Anyone? Does anyone know? Unbelievers, non Christians, unbelievers. So um, here's player number two in this scene. We have we have Satan, and then there's something going on in these thousand years that seems to have to do with the nations, unbelievers. And they are not and that they that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. Now, scene changes. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So we're gonna who are the those? Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. So, this is referring back to Revelation 6. It, it, it's the scene of these suffering Christians, and some of them are even being beheaded. Now, it depends what view you take. Are you, are you a futurist view? And, and this is talking about... People that, you know, are going to lay down their lives and get beheaded in this seven years of tribulation that has not occurred yet? Or are you a, a preterist view that says, okay, this has already happened and, and these people have already died? Or are you, a, are you an idealist view and this is symbolic? And this is just every Christian that has ever suffered and died for the sake of the gospel in all of history. So, so you, you already run into some interpretive problems here. You already go, okay, well, well what view are we viewing this through When it comes to 5 through 19. And so it says. And those who had not worshipped the beast. Again referring to another part in the book of Revelation. Where um, they did not take the image. It says. "Who, Who had not worshipped the beast and its image. And had not received its mark on their foreheads. Or their hands. They came to life. And what did they do? They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we are introduced to two different groups of people. You have those who were either beheaded or did not receive the mark of of the beast. Now again, do you have a futurist view of this mark or do you have a a symbolic view of this mark? Like, which is it? And and that interprets how you understand chapter 20 here. But you have these people that are raised to life, and we're going to talk about that for a moment. Well, are they... Are they raised on earth, or is it a picture of them being raised up to judge in heaven? Nonetheless, you have these these dead believers um, being raised, and they are reigning with Christ. And so we have Christ reigning. And then it says, the rest of the dead... Okay, well, I guess you have five people. I just noticed this this morning. And then you have the rest of the dead that did not come to life. We'll meet them on judgment day in a few verses. Until the thousand years, there it is again, were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death, we'll talk about what the second death is. It becomes very clear. It's it's hell. Um, It has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, here's our key players. We have four key players. We have Satan, we've got Nations which are unbelievers, we have the raised believers, and then we have Christ. All of them seem to play some kind of role in these thousand years, also called the millennium here. And you have three views of understanding this scene. And here are the three views. There's pre-millennial, also known as pre-mill, post-millennial, or a-millennial. When it says pre or post, it's this is referring to Jesus' second coming. Jesus comes pre millennial is one view. Jesus comes post millennial is another. And then We'll talk about all millennials. So here are the three views. Let's start with pre-mill here. Um, so this is going to sound, look, really teachy. I did bullet points here. Um, this is like a class I took in seminary where they pulled up the pro, or, or the, the PowerPoint, and I, 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 for some reason, didn't like it. It felt like a class, and so this is going to feel like a class, but guys were already in a school, so that kind of makes sense. And here's what I realized, is if I have bullet points here, we'll get through this a lot faster if I didn't. So I'm just going to kind of stick to the script here. Um, and by the way, we're flying 30,000 foot here. Um, there's going to be so many questions that are going to come up and be like, Oh, what about this? And what about that? And I, good, good. I'm hoping that will happen. And what you will do is you will go and, and learn more yourself. And so here's one really easy resource. Um, I have an ESV study Bible. I don't bring it anymore cause it's falling apart. Um, But the ESV Study Bible, if you go online, go on Google and just type in ESV Study Bible Book of Revelation, you will find a PDF of the the introduction that the ESV Study Bible does on Revelation. And it'll talk in more detail about the four views we just talked about. And then it'll talk in more detail about these three views that we're going to talk about. Or you can go just pick up all kinds of books on Amazon, um, and ask me for recommendations and I will tell you. Pre-mail view. Here Here it is. Here's how it understands. So first the pre-mail takes a futurist understanding of chapters 5 through 19. The pre-mail says, hey, none of Revelation has even happened yet. 5 through 19, it's still going to happen. When it happens in the future, it'll be seven decisive years, seven years of tribulation. At the end of the seven years of tribulation, Jesus is literally going to come back. They take a very literal understanding of the whole entire book of Revelation. There really are no symbols. There really are no metaphors. It's just all literal. And so they say Jesus is literally going to come back. Um, and Christ will return. And he will rule on earth for a thousand years. So these, these believers that are raised to life. The dead in Christ. Now pre mills Different pre mills have different understandings about what I'm about ready to say. Um, But for the most part, they most likely believe that those who died during the seven-year tribulation, they're the ones that rise and reign with Christ. And they literally reign. So here's the picture. They would say the seven years of tribulation have not happened yet. How many of you know someone who knows Jesus and they have died? Yep, yep, we all know someone, hopefully. Yes. They would say when Jesus comes back, and has this literal rain, that believer friend of yours will not rise in rain with them. But rather, it's all the believers who died during these seven years, they're the ones that rain. And we, or your friend who died, um, is, they'll be raised to life at the final judgment, and then get to enjoy the new heavens, new earth. So that, that, that's how they view that. Um, it is a literal thousand years. It is a literal binding of Satan. Um, and there is a literal ruling by Christ on earth. Like everything is literal. Now, here's what's interesting. They still believe that earth is, earth is still infected with sin, sorrow, and death, but is largely relieved from sin's social and physical consequences. Why? Because Satan is nowhere to be found. He's been bound. And, and then, after this... In verse 8, it tells us Satan comes back, there's this war, doesn't last very long, final judgment, and then there's the new heavens and new earth. That's the pre view. I'm sure you have questions. So do I. What I don't, what I struggle with with the pre view is, other than it has a futurist understanding because I, I don't lean in that direction, um, is, is it doesn't really do much for the nations. It doesn't really include the nations because everyone's just kind of being ruled by like so you'll you'll see that here. You have the post mill view. So post millennial view sees chapters five through nineteen as already happened. So they have a preterist view, or they have a historic view. They they view okay all of Revelation five through nineteen. It's already happened, or it's still kind of in the process of happening right now. And post mill believes that these thousand years most likely are not an exact thousand years. Just not exact, it's just talking about a really long time or a significant amount of time. And here's what it describes. Here's what the millennium is describing. Here's what the thousand years is describing. It's describing this wonderful coming age where the gospel will triumph so greatly that it will transform societies and cultures at a global scale. So think global revival. And then after that, post-mill, after that, Jesus has a second coming. And, and so there's, there's two schools of thought for a post mail. One school of thought is we have yet to encounter the millennium yet. That we have yet to walk into this, this season of time where, where the gospel has this global revival that takes place and we see all of these nations turn to Christ. Um, you have another school of thought that says, no, 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 no this is going to happen over time. And so the millennium is describing what, what the beginning of what happened when Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, and what you what you what we're going to see in the millennium is this gradual process of the gospel gaining ground, one decade, one century, one millennial after another. And when you think about it, there's that that makes sense to a certain degree because in Acts Chapter 1 and chapter 2, the gospel is only in Jerusalem, but then it begins to spread to the whole entire nations. And so they take Matthew 28, very serious, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus said that. And so they would say, you know when it talks about Satan being bound, that's what it's referring to. It's this symbolic bounding. It is, Jesus now has This absolute authority over all of heaven and all of earth. And Jesus says, go, therefore, to all nations and and go and make disciples. And so post-mill would say this is either going to happen like starting, I don't know, 100 years from now or sometime in the future. Or they would say it's already happening And after we see this global scale revival, then we get to verse 8 and we'll read that. Um, And so Satan is symbolically bound. It is a picture of Christ's authority over him for the advancement of the gospel through the church. Um, And and then what's going on with Christ and, and these believers... Um, In verses 4 and 5, Christ is ruling from heaven, not on earth, and is using the Holy Spirit to empower the church and believers to move the mission forward. And so Christ and um, believers in Christ who have died, they are ruling from heaven. That is the picture of of the post-mill. Now, a-mill. What does that even mean? So, a-millennial sees chapters 5 through 20 as this symbolic, symbolic picture of the battle between Christ and the church against Satan and his vessels. A battle in which Christ and the church decisively win, this is huge y'all, amidst suffering. So Amil understands chapters 5 through 19 from an idealist approach. All of Revelation is this, this symbolic language of this continual um, suffering that we are going to walk through as Christians, but as we suffer in the midst of it, we are victorious because Christ is victorious. And so, here's where millennial I think, is a confusing name, because millennial literally means like no millennium, but that, that, I don't think that's helpful. Because that's not the exact understanding of an all-millennial view. I wrote this. The name is confusing, suggesting there is no millennium. But rather, the millennium is a, is a symbol to the reality that Christ's death and resurrection has bound Satan's power and authority, not completely over-deceiving the nations so that the gospel may advance. And so it looks to, again, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Satan has been like symbolically um, bound so that the gospel can go forth, just like the historic view. The Mill view sees the gospel advancing globally amidst the trials and the tribulations As we see in previous parts of Revelation. By the Holy Spirit's power through the church. And just as Jesus conquered as a slain lamb. So the victorious church will consist of believers. Who are faithfully spreading the gospel amidst suffering. And then this last part, believers are reigning in heaven with Christ. So there's really not a big difference between post-mill and on-mill. The post-mill would just say, no, 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 this this millennium, it is kind of like this decisive amount of time. It may not be exactly a thousand years, but it is seems to be like a decisive amount of time. A male would say, no, 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 it's not a decisive amount of time. It's just referring to the fact that Christ's power and Christ's authority reigns. So there are our three views. Pre-mail, post-mail, mail. Which one do you have? <laughs> yeah, right? I know. You're yeah, just thinking, which one? Um, I'll just tell you where I lean. And I lean with a very open hand. Um, if it helps, um, three months ago, I did not have a view. I did not. Not... Because I didn't want a movie or a novel or someone else telling me what they thought to sway me. And so I never really had a view. In fact, it was on my 2018 goals, um, decide on your end times view. And so here's the view that I hold very open-handedly. I um, have an idealist view. I lean that way. I lean towards the idealist view. And therefore, I lean towards an millennial view namely because I believe that it aligns um, more than the other views with the purpose of the book of Revelation. If you're like, what's the purpose? Listen to last week's message. And I also believe it aligns more with, um, with what we see in Scripture and what we see in, in Jesus' teaching. He says, hey, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. If you want to follow me, deny yourself. And, and the book of Revelation is this this. It, if you have an idealist view, is it does take that on? Is you all, you win because Jesus wins? But just as he suffered, you're going to suffer too. So that's my view. You can be like one of our elders who does not have that view. And we, him and I do not go like, well, here's why you're wrong and I'm right. But rather, rather we talk about it and go, okay, well, what parts of scripture do you point to? And what, okay, here's where I point to. And it's an excellent conversation. And, uh, and you know, who knows? Maybe I'll sway one way or he'll sway another. At the end of the day, Jesus wins, y'all. Jesus wins. And so do you. So we can hold it very open-handedly. Now here's where we get very serious. Judgment Day. So, Revelation 7 through 8. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. This is referring to uh, Ezekiel 36, 37. To gather them for battle. So a battle's about ready to take place. Or is it? Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. I love this. Y'all ready for war? But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Battle over. Did it even start? No. Because Jesus wins. And the devil who, was dece- who had deceived them was thrown, where is he thrown? To the lake of fire. And sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then we come to chapter 20, verse 11 and following, where it talks about the final judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him was seated on it. From his presence, Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So this is a picture of, of, of God sitting on the throne. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. This is referring to Daniel chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter seven here. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. This is referring to Daniel chapter 12. And the dead were judged by what was written, by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead, who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into what? The lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. So here's our scene. Called the final judgment. This is not the only time in scripture where we see this scene. We see it throughout all of the Old Testament. It's very often called the day of the Lord. Um, Jesus refers to this in Matthew 25 remember that parable he tells where where he talks about separating um, people like he is separating sheep and goats and he's talking about the final judgment that is going to come Um, and then you you have 2 Corinthians 5.10 where Paul says every single one of us all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the things that he or she has done Whether good or evil. And so we get this picture of Judgment Day. And it seems to lean very heavy upon the wicked that are judged. Upon those whose names are not written in the book of life. And it's because John is going to have a revelation or is going to have this this vision In all of chapter 21 and all of chapter 22 about those whose names are written in the book of life. So we'll get to that next week. Today we get to talk about those whose names are not written in the book of life. And so we have this scene where these books are open. Now there's probably way more books than this. They're probably much larger than this that I have over here. But what's interesting is you have a number of books that are open... That are different from a singular book, the Book of Life. And the contents of these books, see Daniel chapter 7 yourselves, seems to capture the deeds that people have committed that ought to bring God's justice upon them. What is God's justice? Well, if we've done some bad things, it is complete separation from, from him. We would call it hell. Now, um, let's talk about hell for a moment. What is hell? What, what, what is hell? Um, so, we, you can find in the New Testament, the word Hades is used nine times. Sometimes it refers to what we would refer to as, as hell or separation from God. Other times it's just simply referred to death as death um, or as the grave. Like, like it is in Revelation um, 20 verses 10 and following, what we just read. It's, it's not referring to hell itself. It's actually referring to death. But then there is... The, the word Gehenna in Greek that we see in the New Testament, I want to say it's used 15 times. Um, more often than not, it, it comes off of Jesus' lips. Now, what is hell? So, um, this Greek word Gehenna is speaking about a word that is used in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament talks about the death of the wicked in two different ways. It talks about that the word Sheol is used. And again, Sheol is kind of like Hades. Sheol is sometimes just where where dead people go. They go to the ground or they go to Sheol. Sometimes Sheol is um, referred to as the place where the wicked are, are going. But then you have this other description of hell. And it is the description that Jesus picks up. And so, if you read in Second Chronicles 28, it says this. Ahaz, so this is a king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of Sun Hanon. In Greek, this word is Gehenna. So Sun Hinnon was an actual place outside of Jerusalem. But listen to it. And what did the king Ahaz do there? And in it, at Sun Henon and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nation's unbelievers, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings in the high places, on the hills and under every green tree. So one of the things that Ahaz did, one of the very wicked things that he did, is he would go to this place called Sun Hinnon, and he would burn his children as a, as a sacrifice. So it took place in this place. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah picks up and talks about this actual place. In Jeremiah 19:4 through 6. It says, because, this is Lord, the Lord speaking, Yahweh, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocents and have built the high places of Baal, that is a false god, to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not Command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. God says, therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no longer be called Topheth, or the Valley of Son Hinon, or Gehenna in Greek, but the Valley of Slaughter. And so here's what happened: this actual place where people burned their children is an act of worship. God says, No, 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 we're not even going to call this place Son Hanon. It is the valley of slaughter. And for Israel and Jews, this became, this place became an image and a picture of the wrath and the judgment that people would receive if they did not follow Yahweh. And so when Jesus speaks of the judgment of the dead or the judgment of the wicked after they die, he gives them a real picture, something they would understand. He said, "It's going to be like that place." Now you get in conversations with people when it comes to hell. Um, is hell this? Is, is is it like this symbolic place? Is it a metaphor? For what people will, will go through, like the burning, like, like fire is a primary image. So it's like fire, fire and, and slaughter is this um, or the lake of fire. Is this like just an image or is this like a symbol or is it like literally going to be fire? like Or like, like, uh, like volcanic lava that people are going to just like sit in. And here's the deal. It doesn't matter. Because either way, it's real. Whether it's actual fire or not, doesn't change the fact that it's actual torment. And it's actually eternity. It's like Jesus, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's constantly speaking in parables. Metaphors, symbols. Does that mean it's not real? No! He's just giving them pictures they would understand. So, what is hell? There's, I think, three big things that I want us to see and understand about hell. Revelation 20:10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So we know that hell is a place of torment. 2 Thessalonians 1:7 through 9. I think this is maybe the most helpful picture. Of hell, and Paul gives it. He says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, describing Judgment Day here, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, here's what's going to happen they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his might. And so we see that hell is torment. We see that it's destruction. We see that it's punishment. We see maybe most of all. It is away from the presence of the Lord. Revelation, again, 13, 9 through 11, gives us a picture. It says, Even if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Hell is God's divine wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented, there it is again, with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. So that's unique. So it's away from the presence of the Lord, but there's somehow in, in the presence of the Lord where it talks about here. I, I think it's, it's talking about the presence of His wrath in Revelation 13. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Friends, hell is eternal. It is forever, and it is conscious torment. It's just crystal clear here. There is different views about hell out there. In one, the view of annihilation just says, hey, those that are wicked... They're going to die and hell is them no longer existing. That is not what the Bible teaches. It is eternal and it is conscious torment. And then the other piece that we see is is hell is final. There are no second chances. Hell is final and there are no second chances. And this should rattle us. I hope it rattles us. If you're struggling with this, good. We should. As I was studying for this message, I was sitting, I was working from a Starbucks, and and, and, um, this particular Starbucks, one wall that I was facing, it it was just all windows. And outside the window, I can see Maple Valley Highway, and I'm reading this reality that hell is eternal, that hell is this conscious torment, that it is final. When you, get, when you die, final. No second chances. None. None. Zero. And I'm sitting there, and by the grace of God, I'm struck with, with conviction as I see this massive traffic outside of all of these people. And statistically speaking, in the Northwest... Most of those people are driving on their way to hell. And that should do something to me. And it should do something to us. And one of the pieces of application I have for you is think about that. There is a sense in which this is a very holy discontent. This is a very holy aching that we in our hearts should just go, this is serious. People's names are written in these books. And they're only saved if they are written in the book of life. And are we doing something about it? Are we? One of the things that is helpful... I struggle reading this because I, I, I'm, I'm afraid that this will get you off the hook. I don't want what I'm about ready to read to get you off the hook and make you feel good about people going to hell. But what I'm about ready to read, at least, at least what it does is it, is it answers the objection of, well, that seems pretty harsh. Why would God do that? So think of it in that way. Why would God do that? Not, ooh, I'm going to use this to get myself off the hook for sharing the gospel with a neighbor or coworker. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says this. In the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What is it that they are asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start? Jesus did that on the cross. To forgive them? But they don't want forgiveness. To leave them alone? That's exactly what hell is. There are only two types or two kinds of people in the end those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. Don't let that get you off the hook. Let this merely be a quip or something you can say to someone who says, that that seems pretty strong of God. And you go, well, you know, see us loose. That's something really interesting. But don't let it get you off the hook of going, this is eternal. There are no second chances. And may we weep over this. And may we be on our knees over this. And I would, just simple, I would just simply do this for you. Just simply, just one actual thing of application. Think of someone in your life that does not know Jesus. Take their name. And your kids are good. Do this for your kids, but also do it for someone who's not your kids too. Get on your knees every single day. Like literally, actually get on your knees. Okay, I'm going to do this this week. This, I, I need this just as much as you. And pray for them every day for the rest of your life. That they would turn to the gospel. And then have the courage and the boldness to share the gospel with them when God opens that door. That's it. Just do that. And maybe it'll add two or three or four or five or six people. And how epic would it be if in the next three or four years God uses you to bring that person to salvation? That'd be incredible. Be absolutely incredible. But just start with one. One. And the other thing that this conversation about hell does is it points us to the glory and the magnificence of Jesus Christ. As weighty and as horrible and as sickening as the idea of hell is, it is capturing in your hearts and in your minds the weight and the wonder and the beauty and the amazement of Jesus' Costly death on the cross. That Jesus went to hell and back for you. That God did not spare his wrath. God did not spare his wrath for you. I hope you hear that. God did not sweep your sin under the rug. God did not spare the wrath you deserve. He took it and dumped it out on Jesus. And may we feel the weight and the wonder of that. There's something about this book of life. And you know what there is about it? It simply is just referred to as the book of life in Revelation 20. In Revelation 12, do you know what it is referred to? It's not referred to as the book of life. It is referred to as the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. And I think it's very interesting... And I saw the, the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. So apparently, it seems as if the same stuff is written in the book of life as, as the other books. Almost the same exact stuff. Namely, the stuff that we've done. But there's something about the book of life. Apparently, it just has like the cross next to it. <laughs> All the stuff you've done... Paid for by Jesus. That's incredible. And I hope that just just gets you on your face in awe and wonder of Jesus Christ. This is what He's done for us. And may our lives look like it. Let's pray. Father, I know I have trouble feeling the weight of hell. And therefore, the mission of gospel spreading that it ought to beckon me to. In addition to that, I have a hard time feeling and experiencing the weight and the wonder of Jesus' death for me. He who knew no sin became sin. So that I might become the righteousness of God. That your wrath was not spared. It was just simply diverted and poured out on Jesus. Father, let us feel the weight of the wonder of the gospel. The weight of the wonder of the cross and the beauty of your love. And at the same time, this holy discontent of knowing we have people in our lives that we need to give ourselves to so that their name may, by your grace, be written in the book of life. Stir our hearts, stir our affections for you as we sing this last song. In your name.